All right, we're going to go ahead and continue on in the Gospel of John. We're going to finish up chapter 11 today, and, and we're going to kind of wrap up the story of Lazarus. So remember when Pastor Joseph was preaching last week, Jesus finally made it to Bethany. You remember a couple weeks ago we were talking about it. Jesus told Mary and Martha that uh, Lazarus' sickness didn't lead to death. You remember he said, Jesus, our, our brother is sick. And, and, and what seemed to be almost out of character, Jesus doesn't really do anything. He just stays put. And, uh, but he encourages Mary and Martha, says, you know what, this, this sickness doesn't lead to death. But then, when Jesus arrives in Bethany, we find out that Lazarus had already been dead for several days. And now everybody's confused. Wait a minute, Jesus, you said this wouldn't lead to death. He's obviously dead. Not only is he dead, he's been dead for a while. And the sisters come up to him when he get there and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then Jesus responds, you know what? Lazarus is going to rise again. And wouldn't you know, in what seems to be the entire theme of this gospel, Jesus is misunderstood. You see, they thought they were talking about the resurrection at the end. They thought they were actually talking about the resurrection when all the dead will be resurrected. And although they were correct, Lazarus will be resurrected then as well. That's not what Jesus was talking about. Now for those of us who know the rest of the story, we know what Jesus is about to do. If you don't know the rest of the story, plug your ears real quick, because I'm going to spoil it. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. An incredible miracle happens. Because Jesus, in this case, when he said this sickness doesn't lead to death, he wasn't talking about someday in the resurrection Lazarus is going to rise. No, that he was going to rise right now. And today, we get to see that miracle happen. Today, we're going to see Jesus yell, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus rises from the dead. And he comes forth from the tomb from his grave. But you'll remember as we ended last week, there were some who thought Jesus could have done something if he had just been here. Didn't he love him? They begin to criticize him for not being there. The last verse before this one, verse 37, before we're going to get started here, says, Some of them said, Could he not have opened his eyes, opened the eyes of the blind man? Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also kept this man from dying? They begin to criticize him. Couldn't you have done something? No, you let your friend die. But here's the thing is that everybody that was there, their, their vision was limited. See, they thought that death had happened and that was the end. There was nothing, you know, once that happened, there was nothing that could be done. They thought that there was no coming back from that. But the good news is what is impossible for man is possible in the power of God. Amen. And afterwards, we're going to see, once again, a great number of people begin to believe as a result of seeing this miracle. Because these miracles that Jesus are doing, they are evidence that He is who He says He is. They're evidence that He is the Christ, the Messiah. They're evidence that He actually is God. And the unfortunate thing about this is that so many of these people grab onto this conditional faith, this temporary faith. There are so many who are going to believe now and then in a, in a few weeks or I think it's probably about a week and a half, their tune changes. 
but also because of these miracles and because so many were beginning to believe in him, there were others that decided that this is a good time for Jesus to die. We can't have him getting popular. We can't have people believing in him. You know, I sometimes wonder if these people had any idea that what they were about to do wasn't actually going to give them victory, but it was going to ensure the victory of Jesus Christ. You know, it's, it's so funny when you see some of this stuff that, that is, that is we, we see the prophecies that have already come true in the Bible. There's plenty of them. And I wonder if people like realize that they're fulfilling them. I wonder if, it's, it's, if, they, if there's just no power to stop it or, or how that works. Like those who are opposed to God, you would think that they would see themselves fulfilling the very thing that they're trying to hold off and would stop. But no, they just go ahead and keep on doing it. They, they're deceived. They think they're winning. But the reality is, is that, that they ensured victory for Jesus Christ. So then in John eleven thirty eight through 39, it says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. So Jesus, he gets moved again. Remember, right at the end of last week, we saw that Jesus wept. And we have him, he shows up to the tomb and he's deeply moved again. He's likely weeping again. And at this time, everybody is upset. Everybody's crying. Everybody is hurting. I've read that, that back in those times, they actually hired professional mourners for the services so that there was an appropriate amount of mourning and crying and going on. So Jesus shows up. He's deeply moved. He's still upset, but he's, he's, he's not weeping for Lazarus but he's empathizing with those who are in pain around him. You see, Jesus isn't about to have an epiphany, seeing all these sad people going, wait a minute, maybe I'll raise, I'll raise him from the dead. How many know this wasn't something that just happened in the moment right now? This was the plan the entire time. Jesus knew what he was going to do. So it's not like he just had this, this epiphany. Saying, well, why is he crying? It can't be for Lazarus. He knows he's going to raise him from the dead. That's not the end for him. But the reality is, is that when, when we hurt, Jesus hurts. Know this, that when you're hurting or you're struggling, dealing with anything, that Jesus is with you. He understands what you are going through. He emphasizes with your pain, and he will see you through it. The reality is, is that Jesus became a man to be like us. When Jesus says, or when I say, Jesus feels your pain. I'm not being ironic or, or, or just trying to make an allegory. The reality is, is that Jesus felt the very same pain that you and I feel. And he can empathize with us. So he comes to the entrance of this tomb. To this, this cave. This cave is, is, is likely, what they would do in those days is they would, they would, typically carve out the soft limestone into the side of these cliffs and they would dig out these caves to make tombs to bury people. And there's the, the entrance of this cave is covered with a large stone and 
the caves that they used were often large enough for people to walk into. And they were so large, they actually used them for multiple people. So there wouldn't just be Lazarus in this tomb. There'd be others that had been laid to rest in there as well. And uh, the truth is, this is probably very similar to the design, the style of the, the, the tomb that Jesus would be laid in. But the main difference for the one for Jesus, it was a, it was a large tomb that had never been used before. But then Jesus does something quite odd. And he says, roll the stone away. Can you imagine if you're having a funeral and it's a closed casket and somebody shows up and says, open it up. I want to see what's going on. I wonder what they thought of Jesus right now. I mean, the reality is, is that this is something that had the potential of offending every single person that was there. What is this guy doing? What, is he going to defile the body? Why is he, is he messing with this proceeding? And immediately, Martha protests. You know, she still doesn't see it yet. She still doesn't see what's about to happen, even though Jesus has told her, don't worry, this doesn't lead to death. Don't worry, he's going to be resurrected. But when, she asked to, when Jesus asked to open the tomb, Martha immediately responds, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. Now, how many know that the preservation methods used back then aren't the same as the ones that we use today? You know, the stuff that we do today is actually designed to stave off and in some ways halt decomposition completely. But back then, there was some preservation going on when they wrapped them with spices and hopefully that would cover up the odor, but the body is going to begin to decompose. And anybody that's ever walked near a, a, a dead animal, you know that it's not a pleasant odor. After four days in the tomb, Lazarus probably wouldn't have been in great shape. And Martha says, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. This is one of the few times where I like the King James translation better than any other. Because it says, by this time he stinketh. Then in verse 40, Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? You see, Martha still doesn't see what's going on, and she begins to protest when Jesus wants to move, when Jesus wants to do something. And Jesus gently reminds her, Do you not, rem do you not remember the earlier promise that I gave to you? Do you not remember that I said if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And we know that she did believe because in John eleven twenty one through 27, we actually see two pieces of evidence for her belief. Verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So Martha already believed that he could do something. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And this is where she gets confused. He says, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming in the world. So we see evidence of her believing in Jesus. And he says, did I not tell you that if you believed that you would see the glory of God? 
But unfortunately, all too often, just like it is in our life, God makes a promise to us and we, 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 we believe, but as soon as it starts to turn out a little bit different than we expected, we begin to protest, just like Martha. Now, thank God, this is short-lived. She doesn't continue in protest. We're going to see in a second, she steps back and the tomb, the stone is actually rolled away. But here's the thing, church, is I want to encourage you that all of us have received promises from God. You know, what do you mean, Pastor Wayne? I've never received a promise. Well, read your Bible. They're all over the place in there. You have received promise. The Bible is full of promises. Promises that are for each and every one of you who have put your trust in Jesus. But of the utmost importance to us, if we want to see these promises come to fruition, is we have to have faith. We have to believe. Jesus didn't tell her, did I not say you'd see the glory of God no matter what you do? No, he said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? We have to believe. We have to trust that God will do exactly as he says that he will do. And we have to make sure in our own lives that like Martha almost did here, we don't tell God how we can operate in our lives. All too often, we've already made the decision of what God can do in our lives. I truly believe that we don't see more people getting healed because people don't believe healing can happen. I know this is true because miracles happen so much more frequently in third world countries and other countries where they're not so opposed to the spiritual. Miracles happen so much more frequently over there because they haven't lived their entire lives being told that it's impossible. But if we will believe, just like Martha, we will see the glory of God in our lives. Amen? Amen. So in verse 41, it says, They took the stone away. They took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. So Martha hears Jesus, she steps back, and now the stone has been rolled away. And I imagine the onlookers are just staring in silence, wondering what the heck is going on. You know, sometimes when God's about to do something in your life, it may not look like what you expect. It might look a little bit different. It might even be offensive to some people. I mean, there's probably people who are offended that Jesus is, is opening the, the tomb and is getting ready to root around in this dude's grave. So they're, they're, they're sitting there in silence wondering what he's going to do. And I don't know if the crowd heard him encourage Martha saying, you're about to see the glory of God. Or, and, and, they're, and they're waiting there expectantly. Or if maybe they didn't hear him encourage Martha and now they're just wondering what this crazy dude's about to do. They're thinking to themselves, man, no wonder the Pharisees don't like him. Look what he's about to do. He's opening up a grave. What's he going to go in there? But then Jesus simply begins to pray. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but this is an interesting prayer because this isn't a prayer of petition. This is a prayer of thanksgiving. It's also interesting to me because this prayer is not on his behalf. It's actually on the behalf of those listening. One, he doesn't say, Father, will you please raise Lazarus from the dead? He says, no, Father, I thank you that you hear me. He says, and I know that you always hear me, but I say this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. 
So this prayer isn't even necessary for him. He knows that when he speaks, God hears him. He knows that when he prays, God hears him. Jesus always operated in an attitude of thanksgiving to God for hearing and answering his prayers. But he did so in this case with the others standing around because they're about to see an incredible miracle. He wanted to make sure that they knew that it was God's power that made this miracle happen. He wanted to make sure that, that it, was, it was God that was doing this. was going to be evidence that it was God behind him, God's authority, God's power, and prove to them that he was sent by God. It was evidence that he is who he says he is. I also think that this demonstrates to us how we should pray as well. You say, well, Pastor Wayne, what's about to happen? This prayer, everything here, this is Jesus. This isn't us. We can't apply this to us. I mean, this is Jesus, God in the flesh, doing this kind of miracle, doing this kind of thing. We can't apply that to us. But I'll bring up two important points. One, how many know we're supposed to imitate Jesus? So we've been commanded to imitate Jesus. So I think that's that's. The, the main point is we, we, can, we can do what Jesus does because we're commanded to imitate him. Why would we be commanded to imitate Jesus if it was impossible for us to do things in the same way? And two, Jesus operated as a man just like us when he was on this earth. Philippians 2, 6-7 through 7 says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. When Jesus walked on earth as a man, he set his deity aside. He didn't, longer stop, he didn't stop being God, but he set aside the power of God to walk as a man, to walk just like us. And he operated in the same way that we're supposed to operate, by the power of the Holy Spirit and under the authority of God. How could we imitate him otherwise? That would be some sort of cruel joke to say to imitate Jesus if it was impossible to imitate Jesus, don't you think? In addition, if we look at the first letter of John, we see actually pretty similar instructions for us when we pray. 1 John 5.15 says, And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we asked of Him. Doesn't that sound similar? Father, I thank You that You have heard me. I know that You always hear me. 1 John 5.15 And if we know that He hears us, in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. This is why whenever you hear me pray, almost always I don't ask for stuff. I thank God that He's already given it to me. When I'm praying for you, I don't say, Father, please heal this person. I say, thank you, Lord, that you have healed them. When I say, I don't say, Father, please provide for this person. I say, thank you, Father, that you have provided for this person. Because I know that he hears me. And I pray as though I've received already what I've asked for. So when you pray, thank God that he hears you. And thank him that you have received already what you are about to request. Amen? And in verse 43 it says, When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice. Lazarus, come out. See, I'm not a yeller. I kind of wish I was because last week when, when Pastor Joseph yelled it, 
worked out great. But I'm not, I'm not a yeller, so you just have to remember the last week what it sounded like when Joseph yelled. But he says, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his feet wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. I want you to notice again that Jesus didn't make a bargain with God. Father, if you'll just raise Lazarus, then for the rest of my life, I'll follow you. Matter of fact, he didn't even ask God to do it. He didn't didn't even say, Father, thank you for raising Lazarus. He just told Lazarus to raise. Pastor Wayne, that's Jesus, not me. Why are we told to imitate Jesus? Jesus said that if you speak to this mountain to be picked up and cast into the sea, then it'll do so. As I've always been told, sometimes we have to stop telling our problems about our God, or t- start telling, stop telling our God about our problems and start telling our problems about our God. Amen. So Jesus, in a loud voice, spoke in the authority of the Father and says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus responds, to his command. Augustine once said that if Jesus had not said Lazarus' name, everybody would have walked out of the tomb. (laughs) So imagine the shock of the crowds when Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And this bound man hops out of the tomb. He had to have hopped, right? His feet were still bound. His arms were still bound. That's what it says his hands and feet were bound. Even his face was... You know, he's trying to get, he can't see. I mean, it's not like he was leaning against the door when they opened it. He fell out. He had to come out. But his feet were still bound. So imagine when they saw this, this miracle take place, what everyone thought was impossible had just happened before their very eyes. He who was dead was now alive. And we had already discussed that he'd been dead for several days. Decomposition would have already happened at this point. His body wouldn't have been in good shape. And he makes his way out. But you know what there's no indication of? There's no indication that he still stinketh. There's no indication that his body wasn't exactly how God had designed it. There's no indication that he was a zombie. Because here's the thing, when Jesus calls you to life, all the old dead stuff falls away. When Jesus calls you to life, all the old dead stuff falls away. You are made brand new. You are made whole. Amen? And in John eleven forty five through 48 it says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, they believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe. This doesn't sound so terrible to me. He says, If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will, oh, here's the problem. The Romans will come take away both our place and our nation. Isn't it interesting that they mention place first? They're a whole lot less concerned about their nation than they are about their place, their authority. 
You see, every time Jesus does a miracle, we get one of two responses. Seems like we get the same two responses every time. Some believe. They see the miracles as evidence that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the Messiah, that he is in fact God. They see it as evidence that God is with them, that God sent them, and, and that's what they're supposed to see, but there are some who remain indignant and have their hearts still hardened. And this group, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus did. I mean, what has to be going on in your head to see the overwhelming evidence that Jesus is who he says he is to just completely reject it? But then again, I guess we see the same thing every day. And people say, oh, there's no evidence for God. There is so much evidence for God, it's ridiculous. Matter of fact, there have been so many people who have set out to disprove God, and after evaluating the evidence, they end up becoming a Christian. Time and time again, Lee Strobel, what's the guy who wrote more than a carpenter? Um, Josh McDowell. These were all secular scientists who decided to set out to prove, well, uh, Lee Strobel was a journalist, but they set out to prove that, 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 that there was no God, that Jesus wasn't real, and in their studies they evaluated the evidence and came to the conclusion that it's the only logical answer. There is so much evidence for God. So, so how is it that people can look at the same evidence that you and I look at and come, and come to a completely different conclusion? And the only thing that I can understand, the only ex explanation that I can give is that if, if it is true, then their lives has to change. If it is true, they might lose their place. So once the chief priests and the Pharisees find out, they respond somewhat predictably if you've been following along so far. They're concerned with their current position of power and influence, and they know that if Jesus keeps going, more and more people are going to start believing in him. And then if the people believe in him, then the Romans are going to get upset that somebody that they didn't approve of is going to have power and is going to take away their positions. They were more concerned with their own needs, power, position, than they were with what God wanted. So they rejected the obvious evidence and they tried try to determine how can they stop him from being more believed in? How can they stop him from raising in fame and power? How, what can they do to stop him? And it's the same as so many do today. And we just talked about so many people in the world that do the same thing. They, they see the evidence and they reject it because they don't want their own life to change. But I think as Christians, we have to be careful with that as well. We can get so wrapped up in our Christianly stuff that we don't want to see what God is doing, move with God because we're worried about what's going to change for us. And in verse 49, as it continues, this is the Sanhedrin getting together all the religious leaders. It says, but one of them, Caiaphas, and Caiaphas is probably not a Pharisee because the, 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 the high priests were actually part of the Sadducees, but this is the, the, the group of all the leaders together. And one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied 
that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So originally, when God put the priesthood into place, the high priest served his entire lifetime. But the Romans were concerned about one man having too much power. See, when the Romans went in and overtook a society, they didn't obliterate it. They let their religions, they let their positions of power and and authority structure stay, but they just influenced who would be in those positions. So this used to be a lifetime position, but now um, the Romans would just implement whoever they saw fit whenever they wanted to go ahead and limit any one man from getting too much power. Now, Caiaphas held the office from AD 18 to 36. So he was the high priest for 18 years. And according to several of the commentaries that I read as I was studying this, Caiaphas is actually a pretty ruthless high priest who would lash out and quash any opposition to his position or power or authority. And at this point, he had already decided that Jesus had to die to protect the people in the nation and really his position. So he says, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. You know, this is the high priest who at this point was more concerned about his own position, his own life, not, at least from the perspective that we have, not serving God the way he should, or he would have saw that Jesus was from God but God still uses him to prophesy and says, you know what? One die, one guy, Jesus, would die for the nation. He didn't know that he was speaking prophetically as God's high priest when he said this because he had a plan of how it would, would, would play out, but the truth is it didn't play out like he expected. And when John says that he was high priest of that year, like I said, he was actually high priest for eight years. But John keeps emphasizing he was high priest of that year because this is the year that Jesus gave his life for everybody. That's the emphasis here. He was, he was, emphasis, he was prophesying that Jesus would, not, would die for the nation in the year that Jesus died. One man would die for all others to live. So because of Caiaphas's influence and decision, they decided from here on out and began making plans to put Jesus to death. So in verse 54, it says, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. So now because things are getting real, like the, they had wanted him to kill him before, but it was in, in, in fits and spurts. But now this is coming from the highest levels. There is a plan to put Jesus to death. So Jesus heads to this little town near the wilderness to wait on God's timing. You see, Jesus wasn't willing to try to do things in his timings or to impact the plan of God. He was waiting on God's direction and timing. And Ephraim was near the wilderness likely a good place that if anybody did come looking for him, they could escape into the woods. But here's where Jesus waits until the appointed time. This is where Jesus waits before we see him make his triumphal entry 
next week. And then in verse 55 through 57, it says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So now we're getting close to the end of, of Jesus' story while he lived as a man on earth. The Passover of the Jews was now approaching. This is going to be the very Passover where Jesus is crucified. In previous festivals, we found Jesus preaching in the temple. So were those who were following him, they're making their way back to the festival, probably expecting Jesus to teach again. They wanted him to see him. And then we had the Pharisees that are expecting the same thing, and they've told all their, their people that if you see him, let us know, because we want to arrest him. On one hand, many wanted to see him and hear his teaching, but on the other hand, the Pharisees and the other religious leaders wanted him dead. But now we have a stage that is set. In this tension, some wanting to see Jesus, others wanting to see him dead, the stage is set for the scene where Jesus will make his triumphal return into the city. It's where we're going to see so many praising him as he came in, worshiping him as he came in, and just a few short days later, that conditional faith falls apart, and they all begin to cry out, crucify him. This is the beginning of the end of the beginning. Because they thought it was the end, but instead we find victory. Amen.